0: You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Welcome to Belabored, episode eighty-five. This week, we dig into the NLRB's big decision on joint employers and subcontractors. What does it all mean? We'll ask Larry Engelstein, executive vice president and director of collective bargaining and employer relations at SEIU Thirty Two BJ. But first, the news. The battle for Chicago's public schools seems to be never-ending. While the Chicago Teachers Union and our very first guest, Karen Lewis, remain locked in negotiations over their new contract with the city and the possibility of a strike still looms this year, teachers from the union have joined with community and education activists for a hunger strike to reopen one particular shuttered school, and they've been going on for over two weeks. Diet High School in Chicago's Bronzeville neighborhood began to phase out in 2012, with Chicago Public Schools blaming its low test scores for their need to close it. It is set to be closed for this school year since Chicago Public Schools has yet to do anything about the proposals put forward to run the school. Tired of waiting for the city to hear them, 12 parents and activists of the Coalition to Revitalize Diet High School began a hunger strike on Monday, August 17th, demanding that CPS make a decision and reopen it as a district run open enrollment neighborhood public school that would allow all students to attend. Partners in running the school which would focus on green technology would include the Chicago Botanic Gardens as well as the Chicago Teachers Union. Bronzeville, a predominantly black neighborhood, has seen many of its schools close or be, quote, reformed into privatized charters. The hunger strikers, four of whom have needed medical attention, aim to change that process and prove that the community and the teachers, not private businessmen or the city's infamous mayor, Rahm Emanuel, know what's best for the schools. Emanuel publicly compared the hunger strikers to teenagers, as friend of the podcast Micah Utrecht wrote, but did agree to meet with them, although they are saying that nothing concrete came out of that meeting. As I'm recording this, two of the hunger strikers, G2 Brown and April Stogner, joined by AFT President Randy Weingarten, are in D.C. to bring a letter to Education Secretary Arne Duncan, asking him to intervene in the situation and put pressure on Emanuel. Meanwhile, back in Chicago, senior citizens from the neighborhood are joining the strikers in a sit-in and prayer circle outside Emanuel's office. And the hunger strike continues. So
1: we've talked plenty on this show about the struggle of home care workers to get stable, steady wages and dignity at work. And right around the time that we dropped the last podcast with Pramila Nadison talking about her fabulous book on black domestic workers, a landmark appeals court decision came down upholding reforms in the regulations of the Fair Labor Standards Act that will make home care workers eligible for the minimum wage for the first time in, well, the entire history of the Fair Labor Standards Act. The new rules didn't come a day too soon. They were issued in 2013, and they target the workers employed by um, third-party home health care agencies. These people were excluded in the 1970s amendments to the Fair Labor Standards Act that gave uh, domestic workers the minimum wage. Um, back then, these home care workers were considered uh, mere Elder babysitters, read not a real profession. Now, today, of course, the profession has evolved to become uh, a critical part of our healthcare infrastructure, involving many critical medical skills, including administering medications, as well as uh, some pretty arduous manual labor, such as you know lifting patients and um, pushing clients' wheelchairs. And so, it is most definitely serious work, and it always has been. What the Uh, appeals court ruling does is uh, upholds this rule that was passed by the Obama administration and it's a big breakthrough for not just the domestic workers movement, but for the entire low-wage service economy, because uh, these home care workers, many of them are immigrants, poor women of color, it's a very gendered workforce. And uh, the field of home care is uh, interesting because it embodies also some pretty monumental labor organizing. So on the other end of the spectrum, while many home care workers are exempt from the federal minimum wage, you also see these huge senior care and disability care worker organizing efforts in California, Illinois, Minnesota, and Massachusetts. We have talked about that here as well um, when discussing the Supreme Court's uh, rather regressive ruling on union fee collection in Harris v. Quinn. Um, But for now, the home care workers can celebrate this victory. They're getting to the very bare minimum of labor protections with minimum wage and overtime, and hopefully there'll
0: be more victories in the future. After years of strikes and protests all over the country, cities have begun raising their minimum wage at a kind of impressive rate. The most recent to do so, unless someplace else has raised their wage between me recording this and you hearing it, is St. Louis, where the Show Me 15 movement has had a lot of crossover with the Ferguson struggle. I spoke this week with Rasheen Aldridge, a member of Show Me 15, director of Young Activists United, and a member of the Ferguson Commission, about how these movements came together, how St. Louis voted to raise their minimum wage to $11 an hour, and why that's not enough. Talk about how, right, in St. Louis, how you and other people who were part of Show Me 15 got involved with the movement around Mike Brown, and and how the connection of those two things... Maybe helped make this minimum wage increase possible.
2: What's crazy is when, um, when, when the tragedy of Mike Brown happened and um, he lost his life to the Ferguson police officer Darren Wilson. Right.
3: Um,
2: it was several. I wouldn't say several of us, but it was a, a group of us. Maybe about seven. Um, showed me fifteen workers when it first happened. Uh, one one of the stores that one of the workers that type of workers used to work at was at Ferguson McDonald's having participated a lot. Um so we went out just as, you know, show me fifteen members trying to like help organize it. Um and that slowly changed from help organizing to quickly getting involved because this wasn't the same old um as a few years we've been doing our low wage worker um organizing within stores but this was a much Different. This was a, a, a crisis, um, and it was difficult to organize, but um, we went out ever since day two quickly started protesting and quickly started being a part of the movement, being part of this larger movement that no one ever thought would exist, especially just going out there on day two, trying to see what's going on and trying to support your brothers and sisters. No one would have thought that. Um, a, a movement would have been formed just like within the fascist movement. No one really thought that um, the issues that are going on in these low-wage workers uh, in these companies, we never would have thought it would become a movement. And I definitely believe what the low-wage workers have been fighting for has been a direct impact um, of what it, it, the issue is not only in Ferguson, but in a lot of these communities. It is Economic injustice as well, um, and in a lot of these communities like Ferguson and a lot of these communities like the north Northside, St. Louis, uh, where we finally passed a minimum wage bill in the city of St. Louis, and hopefully will benefit. But the jobs that are in our communities are majority low wage jobs, um, and, and that has a direct impact on not only crime, but that has a direct impact on how people live and on how people can, you know, support their family not having to work. Two or three jobs and have to be away from home because you have to, you know, work these low wage jobs because majority jobs are paying low wage jobs. So, um, us going out there wasn't, we didn't expect, like I say, to uh, look back now, but I mean, it was, it was a calling or I wouldn't say a calling, but it was a natural instinct to just go out and fight against the injustices that we have been fighting. In. Uh, in the the past year with the um, low wages, so, and I think, like I said, it's a a clear and direct impact of economic injustice and racial injustice, and we can look all across, not only St. Louis, but I'm pretty sure the country, and see that in certain communities, and, you know, are left out in so many ways from education to um, health to economic uh, mobility. When people look at, you know, when people are looking at the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, once again, it's a, it's a lot of people playing a different role, a lot of different roles. And yes, the Black Lives Matter movement, um, um, initially started, you know, about police brutality and it's still very focused around police brutality. Uh, but we, you know, we must remember, and I know a lot of individuals in the Black Lives Matter movement understand that you know it is it isn't just police brutality, and we have to address these issues that you know we as a nation have have been knowing for so long and until we address you know not only you know not just police brutality uh but the economic injustices in our community, social injustice, all of the injustice, and actually do something about them uh, that's when things are going to get better as not just you know one community but but as a whole. Because uh, these, these fights are, I don't know, looking, I don't know, I, I, it's funny to be connected in the, the Show Me 15 fight years ago, never really was thinking about racial injustice, um, but more on the economic and I guess, of just making more wages, knowing it impacted a lot of people of color, but never really thinking on how it really do impact and learning more, reading more and seeing more statistics and just getting more educated on it. You know, economic injustice is a huge impact on racial injustice, um, and until we help out um, these communities that have been left out, we're going to continue to see, you know, high crime, we're going to continue to see things that shouldn't be right, and and that's what the Black Lives Matter movement has been asking for, that's what low-wage workers have been asking for. equality. You know, we want to be true to fair.
0: That was Rasheen Aldridge from Show Me 15 and the Ferguson Movement for Black Lives. So on Wednesday, about 150 million people in
1: India walked off the job. India saw a massive nationwide one-day strike. Um, There were massive shutdowns at the ports. Traffic was gummed up in a lot of areas, and there were some clashes with police. Uh, There were a couple hundred arrests, according to one report. There are 10 central trade unions involved. They were mainly uh, voicing opposition to policies regarding labor deregulation and the privatization of the public sector. And the paralysis of the economy was especially strong in West Bengal and Kerala, but uh, there were work stoppages uh, across the country. And the BBC reports that most of the workers were in banking, manufacturing, construction, and the coal mining industries It's all a sign that Modi's reign is running into some fierce criticism from India's working masses. The neoliberal economic policies he's been pursuing have been popular with business, but are uh, really exacerbating the existing dramatic inequalities that strafe Indian society there has been labor strife periodically you know pretty regularly in India but uh, a strike of this scale all coordinated on one day is um, hasn't happened in many years um, particularly sensitive issue is privatization of the public sector um, that's a big sign that Modi's accelerating the push towards full market liberalisation Overall, industry analysts estimate that the one-day strike resulted in a loss of about $3.7 billion, and there will most likely be many more labor clashes to come. So last week, the National Labor Relations Board tweaked the definition of employer by declaring that companies that hire subcontractors can be treated as joint employers under federal labor relations law, overturning a long-standing precedent dictating the union rights of workers who are hired through third-party agencies. So what might that mean for your workplace and for the labor movement as a whole? To learn more, we're going to talk to Larry Engelstein. He is executive vice president of 32BJ SEIU. He serves as director of collective bargaining and employer relations. Previously, he served as a labor lawyer with SEIU and a community organizer in Chicago and was involved with the uh, landmark 1990 century city strike in Los Angeles with the Justice for Janitors campaign.
0: Can you explain what the National Labor Relations Board ruling in the Browning-Ferris Industries case just did? Uh,
3: The board ruling was particularly significant in that it uh, made it simpler uh, for workers who are employed by a contractor uh, to hold uh, the uh, entity which effectively is determining uh, their terms and conditions of employment uh, accountable. Uh, in- increasingly in the economy, uh, employees for subcontractors uh, or for employers who are retained by other entities uh, who are often also employers, and those other entities, let's call them the user employers, effectively uh, through their contracting relationship with the subcontractor uh, effectively determine what are the, uh, the ability of the workers for the subcontractor to improve their conditions of employment. Uh, if you take the cleaning industry, for example, uh, a cleaning contractor that's uh, retained by a commercial landlord in a New York City office building or a Boston office building or any office building across the country, essentially the contractor is supplying labor, you know, 90 to 95 percent of what the value of the contract that's obtained by the landlord consists of the labor, both supervisory and direct, of the contractor. Minimum amount of capital investment, minimum amount of supplies. Uh, and so the the terms of the retention are really about the labor cost reimbursement that the contractor obtains, even assuming that there's some markup or profit that the contractor is obtaining off the agreement. For the workers to be able to effectively improve their conditions of employment, to obtain uh, employer-provided health care, retirement benefits, or wage increase, the contractor uh, can't really afford to pay those increases unless the contractor gets uh, the money uh, from the landlord uh, through enhanced compensation under the contractor service agreement with the landlord. Um, and so the, the the essence of the economic relationship, although the formal employment relationship is with the subcontractor, the essence of the economic relationship really is with the entity that retains the subcontractor. The, under labor law, uh, the, the landlord in the example I'm giving you is treated as a neutral or uninterested enterprise in connection with the relationship between the contractor and uh, its employees. Uh, in the parlance of the law, it's considered a secondary employer that the Labor organization that would be seeking to organize or represent the contractor's employees would not be allowed to uh, use uh, uh, strikes or picketing-type activity uh, to put pressure on the landlord in order to change the conditions of the contractor's employees' situation. Uh, that was one of the things that came out of the Taft-Hartley amendments in 1947. So for years in the SEIU through the Justice for Janitors movement uh, and uh, other unions as well and the laborers in their efforts to organize asbestos contractors and the like, the challenge has been to navigate within the limitations of the law to be able to put pressure uh, on the so-called neutral secondary employer who was actually entity that was controlling the terms and conditions of the contractors as part of an effort to improve the conditions of the workers and to organize in those industries. What does that all have to do with the decision uh, by the labor board? Uh, Here's what it has to do with. Uh, The labor board did was go back to the standard that the board had employed really from the thirties in through the seventies and early eighties in evaluating the relationship between, in my example, the landlord and the cleaning contractors to determine whether those two entities should be treated as a quote-unquote joint employer or sometimes called a co-employer and uh, applying the same kind of analysis that the common law applies to determine the employer-employee relationship, uh, they uh, took a uh, more realistic examination of the controlling factors and uh, found example in that case which came out of uh, waste uh, recycling industry but has application across the board that uh, there was a joint employer relationship and therefore that the user entity in my example uh, the commercial landlord could be held accountable legally for the conditions of the contractors employees and therefore that the workers could bring the landlord into the formal process of the of organization and collective bargaining. That was a long speech. I'm sorry. <laughs> um,
1: okay. we, and yet we still have more questions. Um, can you, Uh, Explain how that affects your work at SEIU. I mean, you know, you specifically as legal counsel and also just the the types of issues and campaigns that the union is currently dealing with, everything from, say, the fast food workers movement to home care workers. Um, Where do we see this uh, employment relationship changing and being impacted by the NLRB decision?
3: Well, as I was saying, in our industry for 25 years, we've been organizing contracted cleaners, janitors, contracted security officers, contracted food service workers. All of those industries are prototypical examples of the way in which the workforce has been restructured to try to separate responsibility and control from the uh, economically relevant entity to the a formal or technical employer, and our campaigns have been designed to, to put the responsibility and the onus back on the entities that actually can make the difference in changing conditions for, in, in the workers' lives. Um, this decision will make that easier uh, in the sense that it will more align the legal relationship uh, with the practical economic relationships. And therefore facilitate the organizational process. Uh, I'll give you an example. Under current law, if a uh, landlord chooses to terminate uh, its contractor because the contractor has chosen to recognize the union uh, for its employees, uh, that's perfectly permissible because the view of the labor board is that employers don't have rights, workers have rights and therefore if the uh, landlord wants to get rid of a unionized contractor, it doesn't violate labor law. If the landlord is viewed as a joint employer with the cleaning contractor, then in effect by terminating the cleaning contractor, it's terminating its own employees and it's against the law for the landlord to terminate uh, its own employees because they've chosen uh, to unionize. That's the basic core violation of the law that the act uh, prohibits. So that is a very significant advantage if the joint employer relationship is established and the decision uh, will make it much simpler to to establish that relationship and therefore to avoid you know that kind of situation, which happens often in organizing situations if the landlord is resisting the process because it doesn't want to have to reimburse the contractor for increased uh, operating costs, which would be the result of the enhanced conditions of the workers uh, after organization and I think also in a broader sense uh, leaving aside the legal technicalities the decision really focuses back on the idea that the restructuring of the economy uh, that has been happening uh, doesn't necessarily mean that those people who are uh, have the economic power uh, can avoid responsibility for the conditions that result. Uh, I mean, the decision is very carefully written to be consistent with what the statute limits the board's ability to do and is not based on social policy concerns, uh, but it does uh, better fulfill the, the the core purposes of the act by facilitating collective bargaining and organization. The dissent is, I think, very amusing because it purports to be an attack. You know, the decision 3-2. It's polarized based on... Democratic appointees and Republican appointees. Not that that, of course, affects uh, how they reason legally. Uh, but the the dissent really is based on, uh, purports to be a critique of the particular uh, analysis of the majority, but really it is a, a attack on the whole concept of, of joint employer, because it acknowledges that the joint employer doctrine makes it more difficult for In my example, the landlords are the using user entities to manipulate the employer relationships in a way that would frustrate the core purposes of the labor act, which include giving workers the opportunity to unionize and to through bargaining to improve their conditions. Um, So, um, you know, I think the decision is appears more radical than it really is because it really resets the clock back to what the labor board used to do prior to the 1980s. But like so many aspects of New Deal legislation, which formed a core part of the social compact in this country for decades, simply going back to what that standard was now appears radical, uh, given the the changes that the right wing has been able to uh, move in public policy discussion and in core assumptions in this country, you know, over the last uh, 30 or 40 years. So, the irony of it is to say uh that we go back to a standard that the labor hoard in the 1970s constitutes a radical attack on, you know, capitalism's ability to uh to operate, um, you know, is uh is sort of like remembering that, you know, Richard Nixon uh, supported the Clean Air Act and uh, and OSHA
0: yeah, that's, that's a, a really good point. So I want to go back a little bit, because um, as you mentioned, this subcontracting has become more and more prevalent in recent years. Can you talk a little bit about how that happened, sort of why companies wanted to go to subcontractors, even though sometimes they cost them more money than just paying those same employees directly would, and how particularly that threw a wrench into the organizing process?
3: I mean, I... You know, I, I do think it's important to acknowledge that uh, there has always been a fluidity in the employment relationships.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: That the structure of the of the internal labor market, so to speak, uh, in an enterprise has been uh, the boundaries of it have changed over time in in radical ways that. Not a, conf- a consequence not only of technology but also the level of work organization in response to technological change
2: Right. you know
3: way back in the day in the late 19th century there were in manufacturing there was internal contracting as a way of organizing the work and as technology changed the controls that the skilled crafts workers inside the factories possessed through that internal contracting process were eroded uh, and you know the more Taylorist model that people have in mind today as the permanent fixture of the structure of work was embedded. But you go back and look at the history of of retail stores and department stores used to be structured as a series of contract relationships between uh, the department store operator, particular merchants who would subcontract or lease internal space within the department stores hire employees to sell their products within those department store environments. And some of the early joint employer cases in the labor board, uh, you know, case law uh, arose out of those kinds of relationships. So I do think there's a note of caution that we shouldn't forget the fact that that kind of fluidity is always a product of the nature of, you know, capitalism yeah. and that um, while there has been some you know new trends that have emerged, it still has always been an aspect of the labor force, right. and industries have had to organize, notwithstanding that kind of disaggregated uh, way in which the work was structured. And you can look at that in garment. You can look at that in construction. You can look at that in trucking. Uh, you can look at that in fishing. Certainly agriculture, which isn't under the Labor Act, this Labor Act, you know, has always been characterized by that. So I just think that, you know, the paradigm that is often said that there was once this model of a completely vertically integrated operation that was all under one employment roof. I'm not sure that, you know, the glory days were always so much that way. Mining is another example of an industry that was always fractured uh, and had multiple vendors built into the production process. So having said all that, (laughs) uh, you know, um, the question about why employers choose to disaggregate or contract out particular functions or uh, no longer to sort of vertically integrate, uh, you know, is an interesting question, which uh, I don't even think the economists necessarily have consensus on, whatever their ideological predilections may be. Um, but, I, I, you know, I, I think that to some extent in some industries, the subcontracting was a way to try to uh, deunionize and uh, to reduce standards, and particularly in situations where the nature of the ownership interests were shifting from sort of local, regional, more parochial entities that were tied to the culture of their particular localities to national employers or asset managers that had no uh, connection or ties to the local communities. Uh, And that may have been true in hotels and to some extent in in um, in commercial real estate as well, but um, you know our union is a union that represents tens of thousands in our local. Uh, you know, over a hundred thousand contracted workers, right? Um, and uh, and sometimes we represent workers in the same building who are employed by the landlord directly, and some who are employed by the contractor, uh, or multiple contractors. Um, and uh, you know, I think the the issue for us has always been how you maintain standards across a a function, regardless of who the the character of the employer entity is. And and in our view, that's the only way that people can elevate standards because uh, if you organize on a contractor basis but not on an industry basis, you know, the competitive bidding cycle just uh, builds a, a downward spiral. To go back to the case, I think the case offers opportunity that the, the formal and the economic alignment that can come out of it uh, will make, make sense to anybody who lives in the world. It makes sense to, to the workers in terms of who's actually the responsible folks. It focuses public policy on accountability for the entities that can actually make a difference and their need to contribute back to the communities and to build an economy that works for all. And, um, you know, it's, it, it it's a, it's actually, in many ways, a rather conservative decision. It's firmly rooted in common law principles, which are supposed to govern the labor board's determinations, and um, you know, hopefully, it won't be shot down by the conservative courts of appeals when it makes its way up the ladder.
1: I mean, the the ruling, as you so. Uh... Lee outlined there, really turns on this uh, definition of a joint employer. Um, what are some other legal cases or um, fields of labor law that could potentially be affected by this? I'm thinking about maybe, you know, everyone's talking about the pending NLRB case involving McDonald's workers, as well as a number of civil lawsuits um, alleging labor violations that actually name McDonald's as, as a joint employer. Um How might this ruling impact those cases, if at all, um, as well as other things like regulations, like OSHA regulations and whatnot?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, the McDonald's case is working its way through the labor board. The dissent uh, in the Brownie Ferris case made a big deal out of the uh, fact that uh, this would have dire implications for the franchise industry as a whole. The majority was very careful to say they were deciding the case before it and not deciding any other case. Uh, But the the mode of analysis that the majority adopted uh, should be helpful in the franchise cases. Uh, But in the joint employer world, in making that analysis, all cases rise or fall based on the factual relationship between the entities at issue. So the cases will uh, the McDonald's case will be decided based on the relationship between the franchisor and the franchisee, They're both on paper in terms of how it's practically uh, implemented. You know, you can't necessarily predict it simply by the label that's attached to the relationship because it's not the case now that every contractor or subcontractor relationship will automatically lead to a joint employer determination. It should be the case that the same way that the factors are being evaluated in the Browning Ferris case will make it easier if similar facts are presented in the franchise cases, uh, to find a joint employer relationship. And so to that extent, it should be helpful in the, in the McDonald's litigation uh, to reaching a better outcome. That case will have to be decided based on the facts, but my sense of it is that the facts in that situation should show the same kind of control by the McDonald's corporation over the franchisees, but I don't really know the details on that. The employer-employee relationship in the Fair Labor Standards Act is not necessarily based solely on a common law framework. The language is different, and Supreme Court cases going back have allowed a broader consideration of so-called economic realities uh, to determine uh, whether an entity should be held responsible for violations of the Fair Labor Standards Act, uh, even if it's not presenting itself as their employer. The Labor Board can't take that path because the Supreme Court has foreclosed it and is, has to do its analysis within the structure that the common law provides. So there have been and will be, I think, more expansive rulings under the Fair Labor Standards Act than some state-equivalent laws, but you can't necessarily say that one will translate to the other.
0: I want to go back to the dissent that you mentioned, the board's Republican members were vehemently opposed to this ruling, and particularly their argument that this would be harmful to franchises. It seems to me that this could be good news for franchisees who are otherwise, like you mentioned earlier, kind of squeezed between the company that contracts them and their workers. Can you talk a little bit about a little bit more about those arguments and if any of them actually make any sense?
3: My experience in life has been in the cleaning and security contract industries, where I've mostly been working for longer than I, for for a long time. And my experience in those industries has always been that the contractors would love to be able to, they would prefer to be able to pay their employees more to provide them with benefits, to provide them with training. It reduces turnover. There's a better quality of service. And, you know, to some extent, they uh, would they want to pay people better uh, if if the market would permit them to do so. The market does not permit them to do so absent union organization, which raises the floor across the board. So I assume that franchise operators would also like to be able to pay employees higher wages, uh, have a better trained workforce, uh, have less turnover, have employees feel like the place of work is someplace Uh, that they um, are not alienated from uh, when they're at work, but that the structure of their relationship limits the ability for them to do so, given the the constraints under which uh, the franchise agreement is made. The way in which I assume those who are hostile to that enterprise would say is that um, if McDonald's can no longer extract profits to the extent that it can under the current arrangement, it will reconsider whether it wants to chise in the way it does, and uh, and therefore uh, that the net outcome will be that franchise opportunities will be diminished, and therefore the workers will lose in the end, uh, which is another argument that we've always faced in the cleaning or security industries is, well, if you raise conditions and improve workers, then you know the, the, the landlord will simply take the work in-house, because if he can no longer use a contractor and pay low wages, then why should he then why should he continue to have to uh, pay the contractor to perform the work, including whatever margin the contractor makes off the, off the deal? And our answer to that has been, you know, we'll deal with that situation when it arises. It's not a reason why people should continue to have uh, poverty wages and miserable conditions. And uh, then the landlord will be in the middle of the fight itself and will not be able to insulate it, uh, by claiming it's not responsible for those conditions. And, you know, uh, the struggle will move to the next, next front as it were.
1: The struggle yeah. continues. Um, can you explain how this might change, you know, in a particular workplace, how collective bargaining works? Um, I understand that in, in this case, in the Browning case. Um, um, the subcontractors actually uh, vastly outnumbered the regular workforce at this particular plant. So obviously, uh, it makes a big difference if they're allowed to join the collective bargaining unit. Um, can you maybe give an example of um, how uh, the uh, the collective bargaining structure will change or how negotiations might be different um, in light of this ruling?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's the part of the decision that's. Uh, the consequences of which will likely roll out over time, uh, because uh, what the decision says is uh, an entity may have uh, significant control over aspects of the, the contracted workforce's conditions, although not over all aspects of it. But the fact that it has significant impact over some consequences doesn't mean that it shouldn't be part over some consequences, but not all, doesn't mean that it shouldn't be part of the bargaining process. So it's obviously best from the workers' perspective to have more workers together bargaining as part of a unified enterprise uh, because, you know, our general slogan that stronger together uh, and that there's strength in numbers is true. And so rather than having a split workforce having to bargain separately, uh, the workforce can bargain together now with all the entities that have a piece of deciding the situation and, um, have more power in doing so and be able to get to a better outcome. But the, the, um, the, the question about how the bargaining process will go forward, uh, where there are multiple joint employers or in a situation or two, two employers, you know, is, is something that I think the, the, the complexities of which will be teased out in the period ahead. It goes on now uh, in many ways, either in a formal sense uh, or in a de facto sense. Um, and what I mean by that is that often in bargaining with the contractors, there are lots of discussions formally or informally with the contractor's clients, the user entities, who are trying to, you know, as everybody's trying to figure out what a settlement uh, should look like, And in a sense, the the board decision says, let's take those kinds of conversations out of the shadows and make them transparent and part of the process. So I I think there'll be a lot of interesting situations developed as this moves forward.
0: There's also a lot of debate going on right now about workers who are not considered employees of anyone, about workers who are considered independent contractors. Is there any implication from this decision or any other reasoning that went into it that might affect, you know, future decisions on these independent contractors? I know the Uber drivers just got their class action suit certified yesterday, so.
3: From a technical point of view, these are related but different issues. The, the independent contractor question is, again, one that the board is obligated to decide based on common law reasoning. Common law reasoning looks at 20 different factors, weights them in a variety of ways, and uh, you're supposed to then come out with the answer, which everybody acknowledges is often a challenging task. This board has, however, revisited some of those considerations, And found, for example, that FedEx drivers that had previously been treated as independent contractors were employees. And as a result, there's been a wave of organization of those FedEx drivers through the labor board process. So to the extent that, you know, one looks at those common law factors in different ways and can look at them in different ways, there's a uh, hope that some workers who have been previously treated as independent contractors like the FedEx drivers for example may be deemed now to be employees and therefore able to uh, organize under under the act again the the wage and hour cases they they go under a different formulation and they're not necessarily limited to to a, a pure common law analysis but apart from the technical frame You know, the core question from uh, the person on the street that this person who's, this worker who's performing this function and who's doing this job feels, looks, seems like a worker who really doesn't have the kind of entrepreneurial attributes that one normally associates with an independent contractor, does seem like they're in a subordinate relationship with the entity, whether it's Uber or Lyft or whatever who uh, effectively controls what their uh, compensation opportunities are in a way that feels like uh, to the common mind and employee, I think that sense of where the world is moving uh, is increasingly uh, part of the conversation that's happening in the country. And I think that's very important. Uh, a world in which everybody is an independent contractor basically is a world in which all social supports are shifted onto the state. Uh, and that employers' responsibility for many, many aspects of the uh, social welfare are, are minimized. And uh, and the irony of it is I think that even those people who feel like um, uh, we should provide opportunity for business initiative are not really advocating that we should have shift all welfare responsibilities onto the government. <laughs> so... Um, you know, I think the trend may continue to move in a way where these new relationships, which are structured to try to circumvent employer responsibility, come under uh, greater scrutiny and that there is a legal and formal realignment of economic power uh, with those who are exercising it.
1: Um, So just uh, zooming out a little bit and looking at what this might mean for the labor movement as a whole, um, a lot of the so-called outsourced workers, the subcontract workers, contingent workers that um, are are most affected by this ruling – Um, also seem to be, you know, generally poorer, have a lot more precarious working conditions, um, be a lot more vulnerable to uh, injury and and whatnot, and also be immigrants and people of color. Can you talk about the demographics of the segment of the workforce that might be most affected and um, what it means for their um, power in the workplace?
3: Well, I mean, uh, low-wage workers in this country are often people of color, recent immigrant workers in our union. We have 150,000 members who come from all over the world, two-thirds of which are immigrants. But uh, I would say that this, that the restructuring of the workforce is not limited to low-wage work. The faculty adjunct campaign that SEIU is, is part of uh, across the country where PhD who are teaching courses at college campuses are treated like a hiring hall construction pool, making less than unionized janitors in many of those cities is a good example. Uh, Some of the joint employer cases come out of the telecommunications industry where there are, you know, relatively skilled workers who are experiencing the fracturing of their workplace. So I, I would be careful not to, to, um, uh, to limit the, the, the challenges that, are, that workers are facing and trying to organize simply to the low-wage uh, sector uh, in that sense, uh, or to certain kinds of work. But, you know, uh, the, the ruling is helpful, but, you know, what's really going to change conditions in this country is when workers organize and come together and fight. The, the ruling will, you know, to some extent help in that fight. The ruling is not going to create A movement. The movement will put pressure on the agencies to respond to that. And I think what we're seeing around the country is that workers are beginning to go in motion because of the trends over the last 30, 40 years, uh, of what's happening in our country in terms of uh, wage stagnation, increasing inequality, the sense of lack of opportunity, that the promise of what the country is supposed to hold out is not being met and, uh, and what, and increasing racial tensions across our major cities and not even in our cities alone. So that's what's happening. This decision is a, I wouldn't say it's a reflection of that. Um, The cases are coming forward, but that's what's gonna change in this country. That's what's happening. That's what the fight for 15 is about. And this three to two decision is not one way or the other gonna light the fire. Uh, That fire is being lit by the conditions that workers are facing. And the fact that I think the fight for 15 has, to some extent, provided uh, an inspiration and a measure of hope for workers that if they fight, they can win.
1: Yeah. um, Just on that last point, too, um, are you saying also that uh, this doesn't necessarily – for non-unionized workers, um, this ruling may also be, as you said, a reflection or perhaps even a a boost um, to movements like the Fight for 15 that are operating sort of outside of the traditional union structure?
3: I know the decision is giving everybody a lot of reason to comment. I just want to go back again to unions have been organizing through the labor board, around the labor board, in spite of the labor board for decades. This decision is a little piece of a process of aligning the labor board as I again, in a way that went back to what the labor board used to do in the seventies with reality. But the motion uh, in the country, uh, of workers who are angry about their situation is evident is increasing uh from airport workers to fast food workers to uh you know uh, to to janitors to uh to walmart workers you you name it and that is being prompted by the reality of what life is like in this country and the fact that the powers that be are not holding out a, a hope and promise for For workers in this country that there is a future that will be secure, that will provide hope for them, for themselves and their families uh, to have a better life. Uh, And that's the core thing that is going to generate movement and action and has been doing so.
0: That was Larry Engelstein, Director of Collective Bargaining and Employer Relations at SEIU 32BJ. You're listening to Belabored, a Dissent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it is time for ARG! I wish I'd written that. We talked a bunch on this podcast about Sarah Maslin Near's big investigation into nail salons and about what people can do to support the workers who face unhealthy conditions, wage theft, and more. But what was missing from that piece was the fact that workers in the nail salon industry have been organizing for a while and making demands themselves. This week at Fusion, Su Jong Hong, who was on a panel with me at Left Forum on low-wage worker organizing, has an excellent piece of comics journalism, also in Korean as well as English, so that Korean-speaking nail salon workers can read it as well. It fills in this missing angle and shows the workers' agency, something we spoke about last episode on the show with Premilla Addison. Hong had been part of a campaign with nail salon workers all the way back in 2009, when few high-profile people or politicians were interested in supporting the workers who were picketing in the cold to get back one woman's stolen wages. She details these struggles and also points out the way that nail salon workers have been discussed recently, as exploited victims doesn't necessarily help them. The measures put on place from on high by the governor and the mayor also have unintended consequences as workers have gotten fired or had their hours cut to save money. New legislation must include workers' input into the construction and mechanisms for workers to enforce it, otherwise it's mostly just a way for non-affected people to feel good about themselves that they've done something. This piece is a great example of how comics can be used to ramp up a story, to put faces to the anecdotes and thoughts, and to visualize the strain of the job. It dramatizes in a single drawing the reality of health risks on the job and what collective action looks like. I've been a booster of this form for a while, even putting together panels with Matt Boris, Susie Cagle, Aaron Polgreen, and Ron Wimberly at media conferences to push editors to consider comics journalism, so I'm really excited to see more outlets investing in it. I'll leave you with this last thought from Hong's piece from Kathy Dang, the daughter of nail salon worker owners, on the attention gale- gained by nail salon workers. I know this only happened because people organized, not because people suddenly cared. My pick is 10 years after Katrina,
1: New Orleans' all-charter school system has proven a failure. It's by Colleen Kimmett at In These Times. Now, one of the many rosy narrative yarns spun out of post-Katrina New Orleans on this the 10th anniversary of the hurricane is that in the aftermath of the storm, New Orleans schools were rescued from abject failure by an army of pioneering charter schools and corporate education reformers. The school reform community continues to hail the city as a grand success story, showing that privatized charters are really effective and perform better than ordinary public schools, et cetera. Et cetera garnered accolades from philanthropists for supposedly helping to close that racial achievement gap. However, a closer look at the statistics... Such as they matter at all, um, coming out of in these times shows that although test scores have improved, Kimmet reports the school district as a whole has suffered in many ways. There is one study from the Network for Public Education comparing charters in Louisiana. Uh, the majority of which are in New Orleans and Louisiana public schools. And after controlling for factors like race, ethnicity, poverty, on eighth grade reading and math tests, charter school students, quote, performed worse than their public school counterparts by enormous margins, two to three standard deviations. The researchers found that the gap between charter and public school performance in Louisiana was the largest of any state in the country, and Louisiana's overall scores were the fourth lowest in the nation. In other words, not a great report card, whether you're comparing charters with charters or charters with regular public schools. Sadly, this non-achievement has come at quite a cost to the community as a whole. See, the storm didn't just knock down schools, it actually completely wiped out the embattled unionized teaching workforce. Who had long struggled with these impoverished institutions, as well as massive racial segregation besieging the city as a whole. Uh, The post-Katrina school takeover represented the worst kind of disaster capitalism. Whole districts were instantly transformed into charter Petri dishes, displacing virtually the entire regular teaching workforce and bringing in a brand new cadre of whiter, younger and non-union teachers, many of them courtesy of Teach for America. Though the city attracted huge fanfare as a school reform laboratory, the Teach for America recruits made it easier to, you know, shake things up, as they like to say, and establish what education scholar Diane Ravitch has described as, quote, a suspension of democracy that would not be tolerated in a white suburb, but can be done to powerless urban districts where the children are black and Hispanic. So the structure of schools has actually become quite decentralized and in many ways even more unequal and erratic in the wake of the storm. Each district is basically run by its own board, setting you know rules for how the school is run, the length of the school day, the dress code, and the hiring practices, including who gets to be management. And in Louisiana, as with many other states, although the board is technically nonprofit, the management can be either nonprofit or for profit. So, obviously, this is a path to semi or full privatization in the schools. Um, all of this has fed into a rigid, discipline focused curricular regime that has, in some schools, resulted in extremely high suspension rates. And it has also resulted in a pattern of what many see as a sort of subsurface push-out of kids with special needs. For instance, in one case cited in the article, a charter school lost its license after authorities found it had, quote, deliberately screened out special needs students by refusing them services and creating a do-not-call list of families they didn't want to return the following year. In other words, schools getting to be a much less friendly place for kids in the Big Easy. But then again, considering how many New Orleanians found themselves permanently shut out of their hometown after the storm pushed them out, it really shouldn't surprise anyone that this is the kind of welcome home that post-Katrina New Orleans offers its youngest refugees. That's all for Belabored. Please reach us if you have uh, some comments, questions, or a story idea at hashtag# belabored on Twitter or you can email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. and thanks again for tuning in. life is
2: hard so hard I must go
0: You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.